this week, Malincrod appeals Akhtar ruling, JCP gets approval of DIP, begins store liquidation process, AMC launches exchange offer. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, the Reorg LADAM team will provide an update on the deal progress in Argentina, plus the recent filings of cases of LADAM Airlines and Avianca. It's Sunday, June 7th. Malincrod filed an appeal of U.S. District Judge Thomas Hogan's decision in the Akhtar Gel overpayment litigation. Shortly afterward, Malincrod filed an emergency motion asking the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit to enjoin the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, from locking the company out of the Medicaid drug data reporting system while its appeal is pending. The company argues that it, quote, will face an existential threat if CMS is not enjoined. Although CMS has agreed to not begin the process of locking Mallinckrodt out of the reporting system until after June 14th, CMS opposes any further delay of enforcement action, according to the motion requesting the injunction. Mallinckrodt's arguments for an injunction in the appellate court mirror those rejected by Judge Hogan in his May 29th ruling denying a stay. The company submits that it has a substantial likelihood of success on appeal and contends that if CMS is not prevented from locking it out, it would be forced to lower Akhtar's base date average manufacturer price, or AMP, in the Medicaid system to reflect the decision, triggering a $640 million liability to states that it, quote, cannot afford. If the company does not adjust the base date AMP in the system, the motion submits, it would be locked out and declared, quote, out of compliance, and state Medicaid agencies, quote, will no longer be generally required to cover Akhtar. In a response to Mallinckrodt's earlier stay motion, the CMS defendants argued that by using an elevated Akhtar base state AMP for years, the company obtained a $600 million, quote, interest-free loan at taxpayers' expense, which it should repay in due course. The CMS defendants have agreed to file a brief in opposition to the current request for a stay pending appeal by June 8th. The JCPenney debtors obtained court approval of their proposed $450 million new money, $450 million roll-up, dual-draw term loan dip facility on a final basis. Judge David Jones remarked that, quote, in a perfect world, the proposed dip would be, quote, highly objectionable, but acknowledged that the coronavirus-related uncertainty faced by the debtors and prospective lenders made the dip negotiation akin to, quote, an investment into, if not a black hole, certainly a murky hole. In a press release following the hearing, the debtors said that the first $225 million of new money, quote, will be drawn immediately. During the hearing, Judge Jones observed that although no one can know the outcome of the Chapter 11 cases today, a nod to various parties' concerns regarding the potential for the business plan milestone and sale toggle in the DIP and RSA to ultimately result in liquidation rather than a going concern reorganization, the court could, with more certainty, predict the negative case consequences of the debtors not obtaining financing. I will not let this case languish, Judge Jones said, noting the need for retail debtors to conduct expedient cases. The DIP facility was approved on a final basis over objections from the official committee of unsecured creditors and various landlords. The crossholder group of the first and second lien debt holders, which had proposed an alternative DIP facility and came into the hearing still formally opposing the debtors' preferred DIP, 
ultimately withdrew their objection after reaching agreement with the First Lien Group on a settlement that would permit the crossholder group members to participate in a $53 million of the proposed $453 million roll-up component of the DIP. The debtors also on Thursday filed a motion requesting approval of store closing procedures and identifying an initial set of 154 underperforming stores for closure. The debtors state that on the basis of, quote, extensive analysis of their existing footprint of 846 brick and mortar retail locations throughout the United States and Puerto Rico, they, quote, anticipate rationalizing their store portfolio to approximately 600 stores. Lease negotiations are ongoing and the debtors say that if they are unable to obtain sufficient relief concerning stores, quote, that are on the cusp of failing to meet certain performance standards, then such stores would close as part of a second or third phase of store closings. The debtors say they expect to complete all lease negotiations by mid-July 2020, consistent with prior representations in their motions to defer payment of June and July rent to mid-July. A group of holders of AMC Entertainment's 2024, 2025, 2026, and 2027 subordinated notes has organized with Millbank as legal advisor and has been evaluating the terms of the movie theater chain's exchange offer announced Wednesday, June 3rd, according to a press release from Millbank reviewed by Reorg. The ad hoc group consists of holders that own a majority of multiple subordinated notes tranches. The exchange seeks to swap subordinated notes into up to $640 million of new 12% cash-slash-pick secondly notes due 2026 at an early tender price of between $0.51 to $0.66 cents on the dollar. If the company receives the consents from holders of a majority of each series of the subnotes, then the $640 million new notes cap will be lifted and any and all subnotes tendered will be accepted. The exchange offer is conditioned on the consent of Silver Lake Group, which owns a majority of AMC's $600 million, 2.95% convertible notes due 2024. According to the press release for the exchange offer, the convertible notes, as part of a separate exchange, would be granted a first-priority lien on the collateral securing the credit facilities. AMC said that it expects to either enter into an amendment to the convert's indenture or conduct an exchange to extend the maturity of the notes to May 1, 2026, and, in either case, grant a first-priority lien on the collateral to secure the convertible notes. With the exchange announcement, AMC disclosed a cash balance of $718 million as of April 30th. On the island of Puerto Rico, in a much-anticipated ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday issued its opinion in the Aurelius case, upholding the Promisa Oversight Board's structure and the validity and effects of its actions during its tenure. The Supreme Court ultimately concluded that although the Appointments Clause of the U.S. Constitution governs the appointments of all officers of the United States, including those located in Puerto Rico, it does not dictate how the Oversight Board's members must be selected because they are not, quote, officers of the United States. The opinion points out that two provisions in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, and Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, quote, empower Congress to create local offices for the District of Columbia and for Puerto Rico and the territories. The court determined that the Oversight Board, which was established by Congress pursuant to these two provisions, is statutorily tasked with supervising the fiscal policies of the Commonwealth and representing Puerto Rico in its bankruptcy proceedings, responsibilities that the Supreme Court categorizes as, quote, primarily local in nature. The opinion explains that because the Appointments Clause terms officers of the United States has, quote, never been understood to cover those whose powers and duties are primarily local in nature and derived from these two constitutional provisions, the Oversight Board members are not 
officers of the United States. The conclusion is also supported by the text of PROMISA itself, the court found. As a result, the court reversed and remanded the decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, which had held that members of the PROMISA Oversight Board were appointed in violation of the U.S. Constitution's Appointments Clause. The First Circuit's rulings reversed the decision by Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who denied a motion by Aurelius seeking to dismiss the Commonwealth's Title III petition, along with a related motion of relief from the automatic stay, after finding that the members of the Oversight Board did not qualify as officers of the U.S. subject to the Appointments Clause. In an interview last Friday with Reorg, Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority Executive Director Omar Marrero said that talks should resume between creditors about re-evaluating the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment because the urgency of exiting bankruptcy has increased in the face of projected economic decline over the next five years and potential changes among Commonwealth and PROMISA Oversight Board officials involved in the restructuring process. The FF chief also expressed optimism that the proposed concession of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's transmission and distribution system, which he said is in the approval stages, would be completed shortly. Marrero and the proposed T&D concession could be finalized before a prepper restructuring support agreement wins final approval from the Title III court and could help shape the restructuring transaction. Marrero added that the Commonwealth is still analyzing the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the PREPA RSA. Quote, right now, being honest on the prep side, we really want to see how we progress on the concession. Once we have more clarity and concrete actions on that side, it will help to provide more clarity on what would be the RSA strategy, he said, noting that the Commonwealth and Oversight Board concur on the importance of the PREPA transaction. Marrero said that private management of PREPA's T&D system and related operations will be a an attractive feature for PREPA bondholders and creditors because the operator will bring expertise and financial capacity to improve the system and operational efficiency. On Wednesday, during the first day of a two-day omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico Title III cases, the PROMISA Oversight Board voiced its continued support for the plan support agreement, underlying the Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment, adding that the PSA remained in effect despite the impact COVID-19 has had on Puerto Rico's financial position and its Title III cases. The Oversight Board acknowledged that the plan would need adjustments, but implied that the settlements embodied in the PSA would remain intact. On Thursday, Judge Swain heard oral argument on the heavily litigated revenue bond stay relief motions. Judge Swain reserved decision on the, quote, gating issues of whether the revenue bondholders hold valid and enforceable liens or security interests in the pledged revenue with respect to the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority, the Puerto Rico Infrastructure Fund, and the Puerto Rico Convention Center District Authority, and on the issue of standing. Judge Swain did not provide any details regarding the expected timing of her decision, which will largely determine whether the parties will proceed with prosecuting the revenue bond adversary proceedings and could have broader implications on the structure of a plan of adjustment in the Title III cases. Other top stories last week were U.S. trustee appoints five-member UCC in ACORN cases, GNC negotiating dip financing with FILO, B2 lenders amid potential June 15th springing maturity on bank debt, Valeris elects to skip senior notes interest payments and enter into 30-day grace period. Obtains event of default waiver on RCF with respect to missed interest payments. $238 million cash balance as of May 29th. 
Before we turn it over to Jim with the week ahead, here is Sean Daly to give us a recap of how COVID-19 has affected certain bankruptcy plan in the latest week. Thanks, Raksha. This edition of the Coronavirus Legal Roundup will focus on the impacts of the pandemic on the JCPenney and Foresight Energy cases, in particular dip and exit financing and case strategy. JCPenney, as you just heard, obtained final approval of its dip financing this week. A little additional background for anyone not familiar with the cases, uh, JCPenney entered Chapter 11 with a dip commitment from a group of first lien term lenders and note holders uh, who were also parties to an RSA with the company providing for uh, a, a balance sheet reorganization that would split the company into an operating company and a real estate uh, investment trust or a REIT um, or toggle to a, a sale under certain conditions. At the first day hearing, a crossholder group of first and second lien debt raised concerns over the terms of the dip and uh, certain fees paid by the debtors immediately pre-petitioned. And so over time, the crossholder group uh, proposed several alternative dip proposals with what they said were better economics. And at the last minute, they removed uh, a business plan toggle event, a a sale toggle event uh, that was one of the elements of the debtor's preferred dip uh, an RSA that was that was criticized. So this is a, a great example, I think, of putting the better into higher and better um, when it comes to debtors favoring uh, a proposal that may not have better economics, uh, but still can be approved under the deferential business judgment rule. The debtors said in why they went with the first lien group that had proposed the original dip. The, uh, the primary reason is that it's the, uh, it was the only dip proposal that the debtors believed would be actionable. And they pointed to two things there, that the crossholder group propo- proposal would require a priming fight. And of course, the debtors were not confident that they could win a priming fight. No one necessarily wants to get into one of those, particularly early in a case. And uh, then the second point was that the RSA negotiated with the first lien group, the debtor said, would give them more certainty regarding a path forward. This is, this is just a great example of process as substance. Uh, the crossholder objection, which was withdrawn in light of their settlement, uh, characterized the RSA as, as just, you know, it's, it's an agreement to agree. It's full of blanks. There's, there's nothing really here to serve uh, as, a, as a cornerstone for the restructuring in the way that the debtors were describing it. But uh, this, you know, the, the fact that an RSA existed, I, I think, was sort of enough on its own. The debtors noted in their papers in the uh, cash collateral and dip motion filed on the first day, they actually they didn't describe the amount of first lien obligations held by the group. Uh, precisely, they just said the group holds more than 66 and two thirds percent, uh, which which, of course, is a, a direct um, tied to the voting requirements uh, for confirmation of a plan. Uh, but even later on, uh, the, the debtors sort of represented in their papers and that uh, you know it would be extraordinarily difficult to confirm a plan over the objection of the first lien group, given their holdings. Uh, the debtors called this, I, I think this is really it, if you had to boil it down, quote, this is an outcome that the crossholder group simply cannot deliver. Um, so just, a, again, a, a great way of saying, well, 
you know, we took it into, we took the crossholder group proposal into consideration, but ultimately we think our uh, preferred proposal, which has perhaps worse economics on its face, is still higher and better. Uh, but at any rate, the, uh, the coronavirus sort of playing with the nature of timing uh, came up. So that, you know, one way to think about this deal is that the court is now approving a deal that was negotiated in late April and in early May, uh, which is in light of the debtor store reopenings. Uh, it's still an open question. So it's by no means certain, but it kind of looks maybe like that was the nadir now. Um, and, and of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But this this tension came up. Uh, counsel for the proposed dip lenders made the the very reasonable point that listen, just because things are improving now, we can't throw caution to the wind. Um, and the on the other hand, the UCC, which had very concerns with various provisions and sort of was asking the court to push off approval of. Um, 506 C, 552 B waivers, uh, various provisions that they said, hey, let's let's hold off for now. Uh, they raised the point that things are improving, therefore values increasing. This was a, a point that was also raised in the later withdrawn crossholder objection. Uh, but then again, business judgment rule, uh, you have to look at reasonability under the circumstances. And the court referenced uh, the the time the deal was negotiated. So Notwithstanding the fact that conditions may have improved since, we're not going to question the, the timing here in a, in a rigorous way that um, I think an objector maybe could have pushed back on a little more strongly. Uh, but it's I, I think the debtors were also perhaps helped on the first day of the case. Judge David Jones came right out and said or expressed an opinion that, uh, you know, perhaps certain of the, the debtors case milestones might be too long. Whereas, you know, the, the typical CERN per concern perhaps is that uh, milestones to uh, in, a, in an RSA or a dip might be too short. So uh, when, when the court's saying, listen, you know, some of your milestones might be too long, that's just a, a great, uh, if, you're, if you're debtor's counsel and you're hearing that, that's, that's just a, a good thing. Uh, the UCC was focused on the potential value in unencumbered assets, particularly real estate assets that would be leaned up under the dip. Uh, debtors sort of said no one was willing to lend against those unencumbered real estate assets only uh, in order to avoid a, a priming fight, which again was one of the avoidance of a priming fight was one of the reasons they went with the first link group. Uh, and, the, and the debtors said that, you know, parties were very specific that given the uncertainty about uh, the coronavirus and market rents for uh, retail department stores. There were um, doubts around valuation, so just no one was was willing to lend solely against those unencumbered assets, which brings up, if, if you squint a little bit, brings up an interesting timing point uh, because under the RSA, where the first link group providing the dip, uh, they're, they're okay with taking equity in the proposed REIT if the company splits into an OPCO and a REIT, whereas they only want OPCO debt, uh, which, you know, the uh, the Berkshire Hathaway Lee Enterprises deal where in, in January, where Lee Enterprises uh, purchased Berkshire Hathaway's newspapers and 
Berkshire became a lender, uh, so sort of moved up from equity holder to to lender. Um, you know, expressing a preference to take equity looks like an increased willingness to bet on the future of the real estate assets as opposed to the operating business itself. So it all just comes back to timing, the very same real estate assets. Uh, and to be fair, some of the, the debtors' real estate assets were already encumbered, so it's not like the, the unencumbered or the, the whole. Uh, but at you know, point in time A, no one's willing to lend on a secured basis against these assets, yet another group is willing uh, in the future under certain conditions to take equity in those very same assets. So I just thought that was an interesting timing consideration. Um, and then one final point from the crossholder proposal that was mooted by their their settlement to participate in the roll-up, they actually uh, proposed providing a non-recourse litigation finance to the debtors um, or the, the committee, anyone who may have standing to pursue these claims in the amount of $10 million to permit the debtors to attempt to recover the $45 million of commitment fees that were paid to the proposed dip lenders uh, immediately before the cases were filed, which I'd don't think you see that every day. Um, and then lastly, in the Foresight Energy cases, a uh, case that was filed before in, in February, so before the pre-coronavirus impact had, had been felt, uh, came in with a pretty strong RSA proposal for $225 million of new money exit financing. And then mid-case uh, made several changes to the proposed RSA and, and corresponding plan, uh, reduced the uh, the exit facility, which would have been a $150 million uh, A tranche and $75 million B tranche. There was a, a new provision put in that 60 days after entry into the financing, uh, there would be an automatic conversion of the $75 million of tranche B exit facility loans into equity. And uh, another interesting wrinkle on top of that, uh, certain holders of dip claims would be able to fund their portion of the tranche B exit facility loans with dip claims. So, um, you know, turning from a full cash exit financing to equitizing some of that financing and then allowing uh, dip lenders to participate uh, rolling over claims instead of cash. So you, you kind of have a, a partially equitizing dip. Um, and then one other change, new common equity that was payable to the exit facility lenders at emergence was increased to 15% of new common equity from 9.9%. And without further ado, here's Jim with the week ahead. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And so for this week, there's quite a lot going on. Here's the highlights. And of course, make sure you consult our Forward Weekly, released bright and early every Monday morning. Monday, June 8th, the settlement conference in Feral Gas, omnibus hearing in Diamond Offshore, and a second day hearing in Ultra Petroleum, along with the early tender deadline in Tupperware. Tuesday, June 9th, omnibus hearings in J.C. Penney and Intelsat, and second day hearing in Gavilon. There's also earnings from Macy's, AMC, GameStop, and PetSmart. Wednesday, June 10th, final dip hearing in Neiman, and stay relief hearings in Dean Foods in Westmoreland. Earnings from United Natural Foods. Thursday, June 11th, confirmation hearing in Fury, second day hearing in Avianca, and a second day operational motions hearing in J.C. Penney. 
Friday, June 12th, disclosure statement hearing in Neiman and earnings from Party City. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Now over to Kyle Wusu and company for a review of Latin America. Thanks. I'm Kyle Wusu, Director of Emerging Markets Credit at Reorg, and I'm joined here by our reporter Santiago Del Carrillo, and we're going to discuss Argentina, LATAM Airlines, and Avianca. What is the latest with the debt negotiations between foreign creditors and Argentina for the around $65 billion in foreign debt that the country wants to restructure? We know that several counterproposals have been exchanged, and Argentina is already in its second exchange offer extension. But how close are they really to an agreement? The Argentine government, creditors, and even the IMF have all said that, they're, that the creditors and the government are much closer to reaching an agreement. However, both the government and creditors have also recognize that there remains differences between the two, considerable differences. The question is, is who is willing to give a little bit more to make it happen? With the non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs, expiring this week, we'll soon learn how close it is. Uh, it is likely that their exchange offer expiration will be extended again, according to sources close to the negotiations. It is also expected that Argentina will present investors a definitive counteroffer very soon, some say today, with investors having until June 12th to decide whether to accept. Argentina has said it has little room to improve its revised offer. Uh, the IMF representative to Argentina said that, and so has the economy minister. Uh, some of the key differences that still remain are the size of the GDP link coupon, um, whether the government will permit exchange bondholders to keep indentures uh, for the 2005 exchange bonds, uh, how much uh, they can lower the, the principal haircut, uh, the capitalization of interest that were owed during this grace period that haven't been paid, and improving the average interest and narrowing the grace period. It is believed that the government's new offer will have an MPV value of, of around 49 to 50. Many local news sources have said that, and some sources close to the negotiations. Um, and that they may also introduce a GDP link coupon, which could improve the offer to 52, 53. Oh, on the other hand, uh, credit groups have are reported to present offers with an MPV value of 53 to 55. So the difference may only be uh, two to three points on an NPV value basis. Can you give a little more color between the different exchange offer proposals? What have creditors and the government improved upon in their latest counter proposals? Yeah, so in general terms, the ad hoc and exchange groups had offered a a cash flow relief of $23.8 billion in a four-year period, coupon reductions averaging 32% across the country's maturity curve, and extending maturities to an average 13.3 years and no amortization payments until 2025. Um, while the other bondholder group, the Argentine Creditor Committee, said it would provide Argentina with $35 billion in cash flow relief across eligible bonds and $70 billion of relief across all foreign currency debt instruments. According to the ACC, it would require Argentina to only make a modest annual fiscal effort of 20% of the GDP. Now, 
the Argentine's government's uh, revised proposal, which was released uh, last week on Friday, uh, made public, which they had been discussing with the bondholders between May 23rd and May 28th, and they had promised to improve upon. Um, it, it followed in the same line as the first proposal in that it offered uh, its current, current uh, dollar-denominated foreign law securities for 10 new bonds, five denominated in dollars and five in euros. However, it offered one new bond, which it was added, a bond due in 2034 that capitalized the interest for par, discount, and global bonds. The MPV value of this accord is about 47, calculated an X yield of 10%. Um, then in the, in the new bond it offered maturing in 2030, Argentina uh, reduces the haircut from 12% in the dollar-denominated and 80% in the euro-denominated version, offering a 7% flat uh, haircut for both. Uh, the amortization begins in 2025 now with 12 uh, biannual coupon payments instead of five annual payments for the dollar-denominated bond beginning in 2026. This is in, the, in a new revised proposal. Then it also cuts a year off of the original bond it offered maturing in 2036 to 2035. This bond maturing 2035 in the dollar and euro-denominated versions will have a reduced grace period to that's, that begins in uh, 2022 for, instead of extending until 2023. And the interest pay will improve during its life. Then it also uh, brings back by one year a bond had originally offered that would mature in 2039 to 2038. So now this bond, which matures in 2038, which is designated for discount bondholders, um, will have an, also have an improved coupon. And then it also cut back a year for the a bond that had originally offered to mature in 2043 and now matures in 2042. And it's designed for par bondholders and discount bondholders. Um, and the, a higher coupon is paid in the first decade as well as lower interest rates between 2026 and 2019 and a lower interest between on, uh, 2029. Uh, 2027 instead of 14 annual quotas beginning in 2030 in the original offer. And finally, uh, it also cuts back, puts back a year from a bond it offered that it would mature in 2047 and now instead it, it matures in 2046. Uh, both securities in, in dollar denominated and euro denominated versions offer better rates mainly in the first few years, and the government also increases the number of biannual and annual quotas to amortize the dollar denominated euro versions of this bond. And what about the the creditor dynamics? Are, are the creditors still demonstrating a united front, or is there a possibility that one main creditor group will accept uh, the sovereign's latest offer while the others reject it, or vice versa? Yeah, so from the very beginning of these negotiations, uh, the th the three main creditor groups, the ACC, Argentine Creditor Committee, uh, Exchange Bondholder Committee, and Ad Hoc uh, Bondholder Group, um, all took pains to, to show a united front. Um, but th they, the ACC has presented one uh, new revised uh, counterproposal, while the 
ad hoc and exchange bondholder group have kind of united together to um, uh, submit their own proposal. And what was interesting was last week and, and this week, how the Argentine government expressed that they were much closer to uh, an agreement with the ACC uh, with their proposal uh, without uh, directly naming them uh, than the ad hoc and exchange bondholder group. So, I mean, there is a a possibility that uh, Argentina might come to an agreement with one creditor group and maybe not the other two or or vice versa. But um, there there still is... uh, a, a lot of information that has to be released and um, we will come to an understanding about what will actually happen as we get uh, closer to the, the June 12th date. Do you think that there is a political willingness for the government to give in further to reach an agreement or will they stick to their offer and let this thing drag out even if it means getting below the 75% acceptance rate that's considered necessary to have a successful proposal? Yes, uh, I think there's definitely political willingness on the part of President Alberto Fernandez uh, due to his experience in uh, previous administrations, uh, seeing you know what happened to Argentina with the holdout bondholders and how it was really a thorn in, his, in the country's side. Um, and also due to the current context of the coronavirus, which has caused uh, you know, the economic activity to fall by the double digits and you know, reaching a, an agreement with the creditors could really, you know, provide a boost to the country in the sense that allowing also it would make it easier for provinces to uh, restructure their debt or uh, issue debt, and also companies that will, will regain uh, access to the markets and be able to restructure their debt. Um, I think it also like it's it's been said that. Uh, the, the president has been the one that's really been pushing the economy minister, Martin Guzman, to modify or be, you know, more conciliatory uh, in in the debt restructuring proposal uh, because it's telling him that he doesn't want to go to, to default. Um, but at the same time, um, considering uh, that they're so close, this doesn't mean that if they if the country doesn't get a 75% acceptance rate for its new revised exchange offer, that they will uh, be conciliatory and completely, you know, give in to uh, the, the, the terms of the creditors, even though there's maybe two to, f- to five points of difference in MPV value between what the creditors and um, the government wants. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. So the IMF recently released a technical staff note assessing Argentina's latest revised pr- proposal. What effect did it have on Argentina and the creditors in this latest round of debt negotiations? So yes, on June 1st, the IMF releases a technical statement uh, about Argentina's debt restructuring proposal, saying it's in support of it, that's consistent with restoring debt sustainability with a high probability, and highlights that there is limited scope to increase payments to private creditors and still meet debt and debt service thresholds. Um, the Republic of Argentina, uh, you know, taking this into account uh, when it extends its uh, the expiration date of its exchange offer, says that it is. 
um, in part, you know, extending the exchange offer in light of the IMF's technical statement and assessing whether additional adjustments to the invitation may be introduced with a view to maximizing investor support. On the other hand, the exchange uh, bondholder, group, bondholder group represented by uh, Quinn Wells, uh, who is who the lawyer is uh, Dennis Hrutskansky, he he said that it, the statement shows that the IMF is acknowledging there is room for Argentina to improve its offer, and highlights that it's up to Argentina to show a serious desire to bridge the remaining gap. While the Argentine Creditor Committee committee. Um, said in, it, in its statement in reaction to the IMF that its proposal fits within the IMF's assessment of Argentina's debt service capacity, requiring Argentina to make only uh, a fiscal effort of 0.20% of GDP. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically the, the effect of this proposal, you know, each of the, the, the parties interpreted it in a different way. Um it's n- not known really w- how much of an effect, if any, this will have on uh, this round of debt negotiations, but we'll, we'll see. There are still no details on how Argentina plans to restructure the $54 billion extended fund facility with the IMF. Can that still play a critical part of the cre- negotiations with creditors? As of yet, uh, Argentina... Uh, hasn't really released any details about the new program it's seeking for the uh, 50, around $57 billion it has borrowed from the IMF um, to kind of restructure uh, or change the schedule of, of those payments. Um, but it, it doesn't seem like they will come to an agreement with the IMF before the, the creditors unless uh, its negotiations with the creditors uh, end up not being very successful, in which they don't get an acceptance level for their new exchange offer of around you know seventy five or sixty fifty percent, um, and they need to continue negotiating for a year or so. Maybe then um, that could play a critical role in negotiations with creditors. What has you know been somewhat imp- important is the IMF's. Uh, continued support of Argentina through this, uh, you know, technical statement they came out with, or uh, saying before coming out with a release uh, a few months ago that Argentina's debt is uh, is not sustainable. Um, that has been uh, it's been helpful, um, but yeah, uh, it seems as though uh, the new program will come after Argentina uh, resolves. Uh, this is the situation with private creditors. What's the situation with the province's debt restructuring processes? processes? Have any new provinces announced uh, that they plan to restructure their debt? The latest province to officially announce they will start debt restructuring negotiations is Rio Negro province, which said it, it plans this week to not pay an $11 million interest payment due on June 8th and enter a 30-day grace period. As it begins negotiations with creditors over restructuring a $300 million bond due in 2025. This is the latest province to join the provinces of Buenos Aires, Mendoza, and La Rioja that have used their 30 day grace periods for debt payments to start negotiations to avoid going into default. Uh, 
Um, Mendoza had not paid a $25 million coupon on May 19th, and La Rioja did not pay a $14.7 million coupon in, in February. On the other hand, the province of Cordoba guaranteed it would pay a $26 million payment due on June 10th. However, the province still plans to restructure its dollar-denominated debt of about $1.9 billion in total. This week, Cordoba's legislator was able to pass a law giving the governor power to execute the restructuring of its public debt. About $1.68 billion is dollar-denominated and under foreign law. Um, Mendoza province is seeking to refinance dollar-denominated bonds due of around $590 million. Um, of, of around 500, $590 million. Um, It's a bond due in 2024. Um, and today it invited bondholders to a liability management transaction. Um, now, the province of Salta and Tierra del Fuego's uh, debt service payments in June and July will be paid as they are backed by oil royalty payments. Um, and yeah, these, this is pretty much the, the latest on the, the provincial front in terms of uh, debt restructuring uh, negotiations. So you noted um, that the Rio Negro province is the latest uh, to join Buenos Aires. Um, that, 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 that brings me to, obviously, Buenos Aires. What's, what's going on with, with Buenos Aires province specifically? Buenos Aires province is following the Republic of Argentina's strategy and extending its exchange offer until June 19th. This month, the province has $547 million due in debt service payments and principal and interest owed. This is after having not paid a $110 million payment on May 14th, using the reason that they are part of the exchange offer. Although the province is technically in default, the creditors haven't filed for the debt payments to be accelerated. The province's finance minister has said there exists certain margins to introduce change to the invitation, at the same time respecting the debt sustainability guidelines by the province. Now, to recall, the province had initially offered a three-year grace period with the 55% haircut to interest and 7% for principal. A decline in the interest load via a gradual increase via step-up coupons began in 2023, in addition to extending the average maturities of its debt from 4.7 to 13 years. It was this last point that was the most criticized by bondholders. It is expected the province will probably again extend its exchange offer deadline. In tandem with the Republic of Argentina, as, as many of the creditors that are negotiating with the sovereign are also negotiating with the province. Interesting. And for the, for the sovereign, um, how do you think the different contracts and, and clauses you mentioned before might impact the negotiations? So many of the corporates in Argentina are waiting for the sovereign to resolve its negotiations to restructure their debt. However, there are many companies that may have to go to the market regardless. Um, one of them is the real estate company IRSA that is facing considerable drop in EBITDA due to the quarantine uh, imposed by the government in reaction to the coronavirus. The company has $450 million in debt maturities between July and November of this year due. And the problem is IRSA's liquidity is weak and it doesn't have enough funds to cover uh, the debt service payments. Uh, specifically, between July and August, IRSA has 115 million debt payments due, and in November, uh, an 180 million debt payment due. Um, currently, IRSA is working on alternatives to refinance this debt, but it's mainly focusing on domestic capital markets. Another one uh, to highlight is uh, Banco uh, Hipotecario. 
uh, which said today that it is an- analyzing alternatives to repay $150 million due in November. The bank is contemplating alternatives in for debt liability management um, and raising new debt to roll over the bank's debt capital structure subject to the Republic's ongoing debt renegotiation process. Here's just um, two uh, examples that of you know, companies that will, will or may have to um, restructure their debt. Um, but it will definitely pick up once or if the, the government um, finally reaches a deal with private creditors. All right, enough about Argentina. Let's move on to the Latin American airlines that have been facing a lot of problems with the coronavirus pandemic and the quarantine measures that have been implemented by governments in Latin America and throughout the world. Let's begin with Avianca. Here we have Kyle, who has been covering this closely and analyzing it at Reorg Research. He is our LATAM team lead in Reorg. Um, So Kyle, could you give us a little bit of background on Avianca? When did a company file? Is there a plan in place? And if so, what will creditors be receiving? And do the debtors have any financing? Avianca filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York on May 10th. There is currently no agreed-upon plan. During the first day hearing, Evan Fleck from Milbank said the debtors are in discussions with third parties regarding financing. Avianca intends to fund the cases through cash generated from its um, their cargo business, but the debtors acknowledge that they would likely need some form of cash infusion at, at a later point. Potential investors include the governments where Avianca operates, so Colombia, um, El Salvador, Ecuador, and uh, potentially Peru. Could you walk through the capital structure for us? Sure. So you've got about um, $3.9 billion in uh, secured bank loans and ECAs, which are mainly secured by aircraft. There's a $250 million loan, which is secured by pledge agreements uh, over Avianca Holdings equity interest in certain of its subsidiaries. Most importantly, this includes, or I should say more importantly, this includes uh, Life Miles, um, which is a uh, frequent flyer entity that's going to be outside of the Chapter 11. You have 50 million of additional senior secured notes, uh, which are um, which have substantially the same terms as the Kingsland United stakeholder loan. Um, a 25 million bridge loan, um, again substantially the same terms. 50 million of uh, Citadel secured notes, which are secured by pledge agreements over uh, Avianca's equity interest in certain of its subsidiaries, um, as well as uh, credit card receivables and a trust collection over certain receivables from sales, as well as a cash collateral account um, and a pledge over fiduciary rights subject to Colombian law. Um, Additional secured debt, 487 million. Um, which is which is secured, uh, I believe, by aircraft equipment, um, and then you've got senior secured notes, uh, the four hundred eighty-four million, um, which are secured by aircraft residual value, unencumbered aircraft, and then IP. Are there any interesting motions to highlight? Sure. The the lease rejection motion, I think, is is one to highlight here. The debtors are seeking to reject leases in connection with certain aircraft and abandon certain other owned aircraft uh, that the debtors have determined are not in the best interest of their estate. Um, the the debtors are, are contending that the owned aircraft are burdensome to the estates uh, because they are not required under the, the debtor's business plan um, and the, the debtors don't have any equity in any of the owned aircraft. 
um, the the valuation um, considered uh, whether each aircraft is is a surplus in a, in a post COVID demand environment. Um, whether each aircraft is optimally suited for post-COVID flight operations from the debtor's Bogota hub, um, whether each aircraft exposes the debtors to risk of carry cost, and um, the, the debtors highlight uh, that the rejection of the applicable leases uh, will result in a significant annual cash, sa- or, so, sorry, a significant annual cost savings for the estates. How did the first day hearing go? What was the result? So at the first day hearing, Judge Martin Glenn granted all of the Avianca debtors relief that was requested, subject to minor changes which were stated on the record. Uh, the, the hearing proceeded on a fully uncontested basis, aside for some, from some uh, inf- in informal comments um, from the office of the U.S. trustee, uh, and Judge Glenn said that the process uh, went very smoothly. And what's next for Avianca? So in terms of what's next, we have the the debtor's second day hearing, which is scheduled for June 11th. Um, So we will be looking for any updates um, as far as uh, the the lease rejection motion, as well as any color around uh, financing and negotiations with creditors. So about two weeks after Avianca filed, Latam Airlines filed for Chapter 11 also. What are some similarities and distinctions between the situation and Avianca's? One difference between um, one key difference between the between the two um, processes is that, is that LATAM has uh, nine hundred million of, of financing, um, whereas Avianca uh, still needs um, to to uh, secure financing and, and is in, is in currently in discussions. Um, in addition, uh, LATAM's equity still has. Over a billion of value, um, and and Latam entities that are uh, avoiding Chapter Eleven uh, contribute more value to Latam's overall enterprise uh, than the Avianca entities that are sitting um, outside of Chapter Eleven. And one thing to note um, with the the Avianca dip uh, or or potential financing that they may seek um, is that that you know I ran through Avianca's capital structure. They 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 haven't a lot of uh, financing that they recently. Um, raised uh, and they had to secure assets in order to raise that financing. I mean, you saw um, for the the 484 million senior secured notes, um, they actually leaned up some of the IP. They actually leaned up the IP, um, and so you know it, it remains to be seen whether or not there there is a lot of flexibility regarding unencumbered assets that are remaining um, to pledge to 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 potential dip lenders um, or exit finance creditors. Um, so it's unclear right now if the, the Avianca, um, if there is a dip, um, if the dip will be will, will prime existing creditors or if, if, if similar to LATAM's dip, um, Avianca's um, will be on unencumbered assets. Could you also walk through the capital structure of LATAM Airlines? So in terms of the capital structure, you have about $4.9 billion of secured debt. Uh, that is the 600 million revolving credit facility, 3.3 billion of uh, SPV aircraft financing, 
$594 million of Jolco financing, $291.7 million of spare engine facilities, and $139 million of prepayment facilities. Um, the note, the tradable notes are uh, the tradable euro bonds. Um, that's the 2024 and 2026 notes. There's 700 million 2024 notes and 800 million 2026 notes. There's also a series of local bonds and unsecured bank loans in the capital structure. In total, um, the, the, company, the, the debtors filed um, with about 7.1 billion of debt, uh, and the there are 2.9 billion of uh, operating lease liabilities. Now let's talk about the dip or debtor in possession. What parties are providing the $900 million in financing? Yeah, sure. So um, LATAM's uh, chief financial officer uh, explained that the company filed its Chapter 11 cases with, with commitments from two significant shareholders um, to fund $900 million of super priority dip financing. Um, the, this is going to be part of a larger uh, $2.2 billion dip facility that will have the potential for upsizing of an additional $500 million of lending capacity, uh, which will contain and which, sorry, will contain certain sub-facilities for issuances of credit, um, issuances of letters of credit. Um, the, the debtors received the $900 million in dip financing from the, the Cueto Group and, and Qatar Airways, which are two of the company's largest shareholders. Um, and at the outset of the, the proceedings, um, Judge, uh, Judge Garrity asked uh, Lisa Schweitzer of, of Cleary Gottlieb, um, counsel for the debtors, whether the anticipated dip facility would prime existing creditors. Um, and Schweitzer said that the terms are still being discussed, um, but reiterated that the debtors expect to realize a lot of value from um, unencumbered assets. Do you have any motions to highlight? Yeah, so, the, I mean, in terms of... Motions to highlight. I think it's similar to uh, Avianca's, uh, you know, the le- the lease rejection motion. Um, in this instance, uh, the debtors filed a motion um, that the court enter an order to um, allowing the debtors to reject or abandon um, certain aircraft leases. Um, the LATAM's case, uh, in, in LATAM's case, I should say, um, I think the lease rejection motion is is getting uh, a little more attention. Um, LATAM has has double ETCs. Um, that are that are pretty frequently traded. Um, so the aircraft, uh, there's been two lease rejection motions thus far. Um, the aircraft that were the subject of the initial lease rejection order, um, it was two two eight two Airbus A three fifties, four Boeing seven eighty seven nine hundreds, um, eleven Airbus three twenty ones, one Airbus A three nineteen. Um, and one Airbus 320. Um, and then in regard to the second lease rejection motion, um, the relevant aircraft, uh, it was a Boeing 767-300 and then um, four Airbus um, A320-232 planes. Um, the, the first rejection order, essentially, that is the, uh, with the exception of the A319, that, that's basically the collateral that, that underlies the, the double ETCs. And I think what, what, what caught a few people by surprise um, was that uh, the, the collateral that was rejected out of the gate, um, you know, the, the, the A350s, um, and the 787s are, are sort of relatively new, um, new, sorry, they're new relative to some of the other debtor, some of the other long haul planes in the debtor's fleet. Um, and then the, the Airbus A321s and the Airbus A320, 
um, are also relatively new um, compared with some of the other short haul uh, or, 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 or single aisle um, planes in the, in the debtor's fleet. And so, you know, people were sort of wondering why, why, um, why reject these planes out of the gate. I think that there was some there there is some thought um, that the lease rejection um, is is a negotiating a negotiating tactic. Um, so perhaps you can um, file the lease rejection motion, um, but still negotiate uh, with your lessors um, to to lower the lease rates or adjust the lease rates so that they um, are appropriate for the current operating environment. So you know it remains to be seen whether this is all we hear um, about these aircraft. So, you know, I, I think that that's something that we're going to have to wait and see um, how this turns out. How did the first day hearing go for LATAM Airlines? What was the result finally? Yeah, so during the during the um, during LATAM's first day hearing, which was also un- uncontested, um, you know, Judge Judge James Garrity granted all of the debtors requested first day relief, uh, which included um, the motion for authorization of LATAM Airlines Group SA to act as the debtor's uh, foreign representative. Um, some of the motions, um, according to um, Schweitzer, who uh, was on, on behalf of the debtors, uh, some of the motions that, that the debtors would like to implement um, quickly uh, were the motion to enforce the automatic stay, of course, uh, the motion to appoint LATAM Airlines as the foreign representative, um, the cash management motion, and the employee wages motion. Now, you said earlier that LATAM entities that are avoiding Chapter 11 contribute more value to LATAM's overall enterprise than the Avianca entities do that are outside Chapter 11. Can you expand on that? Sure. So Avianca, the Avianca Peru entities um, are, are not debtors in Avianca's Chapter 11 cases, but Avianca was already scaling down its, its Peruvian business um, before the, the Chapter 11 filing. And domestic Peru contributed uh, 0.9% to, to contributed 0.9 percent um, Sorry, domestic Peru represented uh, 0.9% of Avianca's revenue in, in 2019. Um, on the other hand, or, or conversely, you know, LATAM entity, um, TAM Linas uh, Arias, uh, is, is not a Chapter 11 entity. Um, so that's a Brazilian entity, and, and LATAM's Brazilian business represented 38% of revenue in 2019. So, you know, LATAM's Brazilian business contributes a lot more to the overall enterprise than, uh, than Avianca's Peru business contributes to, to Avianca's enterprise. It's, you know, LATAM's Brazilian business, which again is not in the Chapter 11, is is a much more valuable part of of overall LATAM. And what's next for this? So the next event is the June 8th uh, hearing on the second lease rejection motion. And then on June 23rd, there's going to be a hearing on the first lease rejection motion. So we should have a little more color and clarity around uh, the aircraft that the debtors are seeking to reject and also around uh, any potential negotiations that have taken place with lessors. That's all from the LATAM team and thanks for listening. Back to you, Connor. Thanks, everyone. And thanks again for listening to this week's Reorg Review. Find all of our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, iTunes, or SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe and we will see you next week.